0: Welcome to the Ephesians in August podcast, episode three, From Death to Life. Before we get into the details of Ephesians 2 1 to 10, it may be helpful to place it within the larger context of the letter. Andrew Lincoln nicely summarizes the purpose of Ephesians with the following quotation. Ephesians attempts to renew the reader's sense of identity by reminding them of the privileges of the great salvation they have experienced and of their place in the Church with its highly significant role in God's purposes for the cosmos as a whole. And it attempts this in order to produce the impetus for a renewed resolve to preserve the unity of the Church and to embody the distinctive ethical qualities of the new humanity they have become in Christ. The letter's purpose aimed at renewing the reader's identity and spurring them on to resulting action is promoted in its structure. The first half of the letter extending from chapters 1 to 3 consists of an extended Thanksgiving section that contains a worshipful celebration of what God has done in and through Christ for the Church. The second half, chapters 4 to 6, is the exhortation that prods the Church to act accordingly. Raymond Brown describes the letter in this way. The first half of the letter is the indicative What is the case, given God's blessings? The second half, then, is the imperative section. What should be the case, given God's blessings? The letter employs three major ways of reinforcing the reader's identity. Through the language of worship, the language of anamnesis, and the language of paranesis. We've already encountered the way that Paul uses the language of worship to strengthen his reader's identity in the thanksgiving and prayer section of chapter 1. In the second half of the letter, we'll discover how ethical, ethical exhortation or paranesis accomplishes this goal. Here in chapter 2, we find the language of anamnesis at work. Anamnesis, a rhetorical term, is the recalling of the past in ways that are formative for the present. In chapter 2, Paul reminds his readers of the sad condition of their lives prior to Christ in order to show them the full impact that the grace of God has had upon their existence. By presenting his readers with this perspective on their past, Paul facilitates an increased appreci- appreciation. Of who they are now in Christ. The term anamnesis can refer to all of Ephesians chapter 2. The first half of the chapter verses 1 to 10 depicts the reader's past as a condition of death, sinfulness, and bondage to evil, and contrasts it with the life-giving experience of God's mercy, grace, and union with Christ. The second half of the chapter, or the second part of the Anamnesis, is found in verses 11-22. to This describes the Gentile readers' past in terms of their alienation from Israel, and contrasts this with their present status of belonging to the new people of God, comprised of both Jew and Gentile, reconciled together in Christ. I will get to the second half of the Anamnesis in The next episode of our podcast. But for now, it's important to say that Ephesians chapter 2 as a whole affirms both the vertical and the horizontal aspects of the reconciling work of God in Christ. The structure of Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, can nicely be divided into three parts. Part 1, verses 1 to 3, describes the pre-Christian condition of the readers. Part 2 verses 4 to 7 depicts the dramatic change for the readers due to God's mercy and grace. Finally, the third section verses 8 to 10 gives a summary of the nature of God's salvation. Grammatically speaking, the first three verses of the passage focus on the object of the sentence. Kai humas. Humas, the word for you, is in the accusative plural. Now, a parsable clause, also in the accusative, expands upon humas, giving a vivid description of the reader's lives prior to their faith in Christ. In verse 4, the subject of the sentence, ha theos, God, is mentioned. Finally, in verse 5, the object of the sentence is reiterated, but changed from you, humas, to us, hemas. And the main verb of the sentence is mentioned, and the main verb is sune zoa poiesin, made alive together with. So the basic idea of this opening part of the passage is that God has made us alive together with Christ. But before Paul can talk about being raised to new life, he needs to remind us that we were once the walking dead. Paul characterizes humanity prior to faith in Christ as being dead, enslaved, and condemned. This passage initially describes the spiritual condition of humanity outside of Christ as, quote, being dead through your transgressions and sins. Clearly, this is not referring to one's physical life. Rather, it speaks of the state of one's inner life or soul with respect to God. In this spiritual state, people are unresponsive to God, as unresponsive as a corpse, They are, as John de Stott describes, blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards Him in the cry, Abba, Father, no no longing for fellowship with His people. The state of deadness covers the whole gamut of attitudes towards God from polite indifference to furious hostility, from agnosticism to atheism. All these attitudes are indications of a resistance to God's involvement in their lives. We should also notice that spiritual death is through your trespasses and sins. Sin is portrayed as both the cause and the manifestation of spiritual deadness. One is dead because of sin, and the indication of deadness is a sinful life. The two words used to describe sin in the passage give a thorough picture of human wrongdoing. A trespass or a transgression, in the Greek, parapatoma, uh, is taking a step across a clear boundary and a sin or hamartia refers to missing the mark like an arrow on the target so sinful humanity defiantly crosses the line that God has made as well as failing to live up to his requirements it is clear in the Bible in both Old and New Testaments that sin is what separates people from God. But we can also observe this in the world. Both the brash hedonist and the civilized agnostic want to live their lives free from divine interference. It's safe to acknowledge a a nebulous higher power in the universe, but believing in a personal God who is actively involved in the world and in your life is a different matter altogether. Believing in Jesus means giving up the desire to do your own thing in order to live for God and allow Him to change your world. This passage also depicts life outside of Christ as an enslavement to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 2 continues with this. You were dead in transgressions and sins, in which, so in these, you once lived, following the course of this world. The Greek text is en heis pote para pateisate kata ton iona tu cosmu tutu. You once lived according to the age of this world. This meaningful expression brings together two concepts this age, Iona, and this world, Cosmos, describing fallen human existence in terms of time and space. Andrew Lincoln nicely summarizes this idea. Instead of being oriented to the life of the age to come and the heavenly realm, the past lives of the readers had been dominated by this present evil age and this world. This world age encompasses the vast social, cultural, political and economic forces which permeate and dominate society, presenting a value system that is indifferent and opposed to God's kingdom. Along with their enslavement to this world age, Paul's readers formally followed the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Ephesians often speaks of evil supernatural powers that are hostile to God's purposes. So it's not surprising that these same evil entities thwart God's work in the lives of people. Humanity's disobedience toward God is spurred on by a personal power of evil, called here, the ruler of the power of the air. The work of the evil one in the world is both blatant and subtle. The third item that his readers were once enslaved by was their own sinful nature. Paul writes, all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. The sinful nature, or the flesh, the Greek word sarx, represents the inclination within humanity to rebel against God and to be unable to please God. It is characterized by the selfish pursuit of one's own desires with no concern for God or other people. Dead, enslaved, and condemned. The final part of Paul's description of life outside of Jesus includes a sobering reminder of the sad end that they once faced. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. Eugene Peterson renders the verse like this. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. God's wrath or anger is directed toward evil in all of its forms. Human sinfulness and disobedience are no exception, making all humanity deserving of God's judgment. The opening paragraph of Ephesians 2 paints a very dismal picture of the human condition apart from God, physically alive yet spiritually dead, and totally unresponsive to God, freed from God yet enslaved by the world, the flesh, and the devil walking towards Judgment Day and oblivious to the sad end. It's bad news, and if Paul stopped there, it would be a very sad ending indeed. This depressing yet truthful spiral into the dark depths of the human condition apart from God is abruptly halted by the two most important words in all of Ephesians, but God... It's three words in the Greek text, ha de the God interrupted this downward progression by reaching out to a dead, enslaved, and condemned humanity. Jodor Neufeld describes this dramatic reversal of fortune like this. Where we should have expected wrath, we have experienced the wealth of God's mercy and great love. Motivated by rich mercy and great love, God intervened, even though we didn't deserve it. God, the life giver, took our dead, decaying corpses, spiritually speaking, and made us alive with Christ. God, the liberator, broke the chains that enslaved us the world, the flesh, and the devil, and rescued us from their dominion by seating us in the heavenly realms with Christ. God, the master craftsman, transformed our broken, sinful selves and transformed us into his work of art, which is created in Christ for good works. God, the Gracious One, saved us from judgment the judgment we deserved this is good news for us and for all humanity God did all this not because we were special or deserving or better than others God did this because he is merciful loving and gracious two times in this passage in verse 5 and in verse 8 Paul stresses By grace you have been saved. Paul loved this word grace. He used it a hundred times in his letters, and it occurs three times in this passage alone. Andrew Lincoln defines grace as the special nature of God's saving action as one of gratuitous generosity to an undeserving sinful humanity. God's act of salvation Raising us from spiritual death, freeing us from oppression, pardoning us from future judgment, recreating our lives is an act of grace. It's his free and undeserved favor towards us. The reality of God's grace in our lives humbles us. Verses 8 and 9 remind us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not the result of works so that no one may boast the lure of spiritual pride is a real one it tempts us to celebrate our spiritual accomplishments as if they were our own it compels us to keep up a spiritual facade when our lives are a bit messy it fosters a holier-than-thou attitude towards all those sinners out there God's grace produces within us a humility that says, There, but for the grace of God, go I. Spiritual humility, however, should not lead to spiritual inactivity. While God's salvation is a gift and not the result of our own initiative, we are transformed by His grace to do good works. Verse 10 reads, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so that we can do good things, the good things that He planned for us long ago. Our good deeds don't save us, but we are saved in order to do good deeds. God's overhaul of our lives brings us full circle. We used to live in trespasses and sins, but now, by God's grace, Our way of life is marked by good deeds. Ephesians 2, 1-10 has several contrasting images that compel us, its readers, to ponder the difference between the way we once were and the way we are now. This passage tells us we were once dead, but now alive. We once lived or walked in sinful sinful ways, but now we live or walk in good works. At that time we lived according to the plan of this world, but now we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Back then we were subject to God's wrath, but now we are saved by God's grace. At one time our lives were dominated by sin, Satan, and our evil desires but now we are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. That's it for our podcast today. Tune in for the next episode on The Broken Wall.